0: Welcome to the New Books in Sports podcast. My name is Bob D'Angelo, and I am a longtime sports journalist now working on my master's degree in history at Southern New Hampshire University. Today we'll be speaking with Brett L. Abrams, the author of Terry Bradshaw, From Super Bowl Champion to Television Personality. Hope you enjoy the interview. Welcome back to the New Books in Sports podcast. Our guest today is Brett L. Abrams, the author of Terry Bradshaw, from Super Bowl champion to television personality. Brett, thanks so much for joining us today. It's great to be here. I appreciate it. Great. Brett is an archivist of electronic records in Washington, D.C., and a cultural and urban historian. Uh, He's written several books, including a couple sports books, which include Capital Sporting Grounds, A History of Stadium and Ballpark Construction in Washington, D.C., and The Bullets, The Wizards in Washington, D.C., Brett, why don't you tell us a little bit about us, about yourself, uh, your background academically and elsewise?
1: Yeah, fine. Uh, I actually went to uh, got, got a doctorate in U.S. history, focused on uh, urban studies, and uh, my interest in in uh, sports history has been just a passion that I have for sports. And I've read so many good books in the field and. It became evident when they built the Washington National Stadium that there was a lot of talk, but there wasn't a lot of background and knowledge about the whole history of Washington, D.C. stadiums. People knew about Griffith Stadium, but that's all that they knew. So I started looking at uh, photographs from the 1880s when Connie Mack played with the Washington Nationals, and they had a stadium right across from where the where the government printing office is now. And then I saw where they built the stadium on Florida Avenue. And I realized that there was an incredible story to be told. So that's how I really got interested in sports history.
0: Oh, that's great. And
1: I wrote the the book on basketball, and it's kind of a fast, fascinating story. Uh, the Redskins owner, the original owner of the Redskins, George Preston Marshall, actually owned a basketball team before he owned the Washington Redskins. And he was with George Hallis and a few other people in in a league, the American Basketball League, that lasted for a couple of years. And it was fascinating. Of course, it had a, a racial uh, line. And the only people that played in it were basically white people. And they were immigrants but for the most part. So that was a really interesting story. And that book got published. And one of the people who read the book, contacted me about writing a book for a new series that they were putting together. And that series was sports idols that become pop culture icons or figures larger than the sport that they originally started it. So that was my challenge, to write a book that featured a figure like that.
0: And how much did you know about Terry Bradshaw before you got into this project?
1: Right. Not very much. Uh, obviously, I knew about him as a Steelers quarterback, and, of course, I'd seen him as a, a football analyst, but that was really the extent of what I knew. So I I'd heard a comment from uh, when they took the Dukes of Hazards off reruns because of the Confederate flag. I had heard a comment by a man named a congressman by the name of Ben Jones, who, said, who was an actor in that show who basically said, good old boys are misunderstood. This is what he understood a good old boy to be. And when I heard that, I thought, well, obviously I was one of the people that was misunderstanding good old boys. And so I started to combine the idea of learning about good old boys with a sports pop figure. And obviously Terry Bradshaw popped right into my mind. And so I started investigating Terry Bradshaw and his connections to Burt Reynolds movies.
0: Yeah, because he did uh, Hooper and he did Cannonball Run and he did uh, Smokey and the Bandit 2, I believe.
1: Correct. He did all three of those. He played himself in Smoking and the Bandit 2, but I think he had a great line where he tells "Uh, Joe Green to tackle that police car. It's I saw it. And he,
0: it's a great and he flips the car over.
1: Right, exactly. And Jackie Gleason's uh, racist policeman says... I knew there would be this kind of trouble once they started that integration (laughs) shit. So it's, it's quite fitting and it's still fun to watch. But Hooper was really the connection that Bradshaw had made with uh, Burt Reynolds through his singing career. So what I think one of the most fascinating parts of the book, besides all the football stuff, which I love to write about, was taking a look at all the all the actors that tried to sing, all the professional athletes that tried to act, all the professional athletes who have fancied themselves singers, and then realizing that Bradshaw was actually competent in these areas, whereas people like Kobe Bryant, who put out a a hip-hop record in the late, late early 90s, Shaquille O'Neal, who put out a couple of records that were actually pretty good, uh, There have been many, many, many athletes who have conceived of themselves as actors, some of whom have done a pretty good job, like Jim Brown, the famous Cleveland Brown running back. Right, in the Dirty Dozen, especially. In the Dirty Dozen, Ice Station Zebra. I mean, those roles were perfect. And there have been a lot of athletes like Fred Williamson, Bernie Casey, who were not necessarily great players, but they became pretty good actors with regular roles. But um, not too many have been both exceptional players and exceptional actors. And then you combine the idea of singing. And, I mean, there's a whole other area to talk about Bradshaw as a singer that I think is, is great. Yeah. And uh, I, I
0: guess uh, Fred Dreyer would come to mind as an actor that a uh, football player became a pretty decent actor, I suppose, in
1: his, in his TV series. Correct. Fred Dreyer is a great example. Merlin Olsen is another great example funny how these people were in los angeles huh yes hmm. Hmm. very interesting so that makes bradshaw exceptional in that rate too because he actually did it from pittsburgh
0: yeah, and pittsburgh is so so different than la it's a blue collar uh steel town you know the old lunch bucket kind of guys and which is kind of different than the old good old boys of the south so it's it's
1: correct yeah. correct and it actually hurt bradshaw both uh In his career, but also personally to be conceived of as Little Abner in shoulder pads, which is what the Pittsburgh media stuck him as because he was a loquacious figure who uh, was really not afraid to tell you what he thought. Didn't have a filter. And so they basically thought he was dumb. And that label stuck with him. It was pernicious. It was uh, there was an example Obviously, in the 1974 Super Bowl, they were comparing Fran Tarkington to Terry Bradshaw and said basically, well, Tar- Tarkington's better and therefore the Vikings are going to win because he's, he's shrewd and Bradshaw's stupid. And then in 1975, the great Super Bowl, Super Bowl ten, which was, you know, Steelers versus the Cowboys the first time, uh, Roger Staubach, Naval Academy graduate, Great player. Bradshaw couldn't even get into LSU, was the perception. So, again, Bradshaw was confronted by 600 media representatives telling him, does this hurt his feelings that he's considered to be dumb?
0: <laughs> and, uh, and then, of course, you had Hollywood Henderson later on that said he couldn't couldn't spell Kev, oh, yeah. I even mean, if you spotted him the C and the A. So, definitely, definitely a pres- Definitely, a perception of uh, intelligence, and he turned out he was quite a brainy quarterback. I mean, he was he was a good, you know, game manager, and he threw the ball when he had to. And of course, the Steelers back then were mostly ball control. So, unless
1: you, of course, they had Stallworth and, and Lynn Swan, but they changed. The Steelers were two sets of teams. If you look at the, that generation, they were throughout an incredibly strong defensive team, no doubt about it. But the guys got older. And as you can see by the Super Bowl IV win, which was 35-31, you're, you're basically seeing the offense carry the team. And the offense was not the grind it, grind it offense of hand the ball to Franco Harris, hand the ball to Rocky Blyer and throw a little pass. I mean, it was Bradshaw uncorking 70-yard passes to Swan and Stalwart.
0: That's true. That's true, because even in the, the one against the Rams, they had that long pass that, you know, they overcame that deficit. So, yeah, that's most definitely different than the earlier Steelers teams. You know, uh, I, what I thought was fascinating, too, is that Bradshaw, even in, through 1974, really didn't have the starting job nailed down. I mean, there was Han Ratty and there was Joe Gilliam. You know, Howard Cosell was in love with Joe Gilliam. Jefferson Street, Joe Gilliam, you know, and and uh, it took a while for Bradshaw to click as a starter,
1: Right. Again, coming back to that, what we talked about, what what the Pittsburgh fans and media liked versus what they didn't like. Uh, Terry Hanratty was the first quarterback. He was drafted the year before Bradshaw from Notre Dame. Bradshaw was from Louisiana, Shreveport, and you've got Butler, Pennsylvania, represented by Terry Hanratty, who was half Italian and who was Catholic. So those two things melded much easier with the Pittsburgh fandom than Bradshaw with his uh, good old boy personality. So people were rooting for Terry Hanratty and he and Bradshaw split the first two years. And despite the fact that the team was significantly better the first year that Bradshaw was the quarterback, that didn't matter. It wasn't enough. And he was displaced and then Hanratty would be displaced and Bradshaw would be back in. The period that you're talking about is a very interesting period, 1974. The players went on strike and they, this was also the period of the World Football League starting up. And so, as we know in Miami, Kick, Warfield and Zonka all left to join the World Football League and other people were courted, including Hanratty and Bradshaw. And they both used that as a device for negotiating with the Steelers to get better contracts. However, there was still a strike going on, and Jefferson Street Joe was able to go and in, be in camp because he was a rookie. So he was getting a lot of reps, and Noel was getting a lot of opportunity to see him. And Bradshaw quickly realized after the first, after the calling off of the first exhibition game, that if he didn't get back into camp, he might actually lose his position. And in fact, he did. Gilliam played the first, I think the first seven games of that season until they realized that Gilliam was kind of partly a flash in the pan. I mean, he had incredible raw talent, no question about that. But consistency, which is the hardest thing for any young quarterback to develop, was not in his game at that point.
0: True. True. Now, Bradshaw declined to help on this project, and you reached out to him, obviously. He was just not interested or didn't want
1: to do it? or I think it's part of his personality. Uh, I'll, I'll answer that with another story. Uh, Tommy Spinks was his greatest friend throughout his childhood. They threw, he threw his passes to Tommy Spinks, and they supposedly threw a million passes to each other by the time that they were in high school. They also went to El, uh, Louisiana Tech together. And their, the daughters of Tommy Spinks, who is now unfortunately deceased, were putting together a book of letters between Tommy Spinks and Bradshaw, and comments that Tommy Spinks had about his friendship with Bradshaw. So basically, sort of a diary and a letter, a letter book, and they asked for help. And Terry said, sure, you can use the pictures, They asked him if they wanted to read it, and he said no. And Kim Burleson, who is the author of that book, and I talked, and we came to the realization that it's not personal. It has nothing to do with who we are. It's more along the lines of Terry looks forward. His personality is always moving on. He's always looking for opportunity. He's always busy. He likes to look forward. He doesn't spend any time looking backwards. It's just not who he is.
0: Well, that's true. And and I guess in in a way, when, when the main subject doesn't cooperate or doesn't want to, it sort of gives you a little bit more freedom because you could talk to people uh, more objectively and, and talk to friends and family and teammates and associates. Did you find that it was a little bit more rewarding doing it that way?
1: It was a different experience. I'm going to tell you that I had the same issue with the basketball book that I had with this book. Uh, leagues do not cooperate with people that they don't know. So you're not going to get any help from the, the league office or the league people itself unless there, it's an authorized, authorized book that they approve of. So that's one thing. The second thing is the team's not going to cooperate if the player does not cooperate. So in other words, if Terry was helpful or Terry Bradshaw was involved in it, then the Steelers would have opened up the gates for me. But he was not. So they don't want to run any risk whatsoever, any personal risk or any kind of alienation that could potentially happen between uh, the player and the team. And then finally, uh, teammates are mixed about what they're going to say. They're cautious. Uh, As one person put it so eloquently, if you want to get back in the league doing anything like any kind of coaching or anything like that, you have to be careful what you say. That's true. It's called a, it's called a big fraternity and the fraternity doesn't forget.
0: <laughs> you know, you made an interesting comment in your introduction um, where you said that uh, Bradshaw discovered the art of being a celebrity.
1: Can you explain what that is? Hmm. Sure. Uh, what a celebrity is, is a person who's known for themselves, for their name and what he developed First was the, he always had an interest, let's put it that way. He always had an interest in being known. So that's part of it. But what he also realized pretty quickly from the dubbing that he got of being uh, the little Abner in pads was this was the personality that I could develop. He developed the persona of a good old boy from the 1970s. even tells stories when he was on, when he was hosting or when he would, host talk shows he had his own talk show for a brief time in 1997 or when he was on jay leno or when he was on david letterman he would talk about his family as if they were backwoods uh, people and he so he played to a southern stereotype so that was a personality that he developed and that helped him build a celebrity a celebrity brand for lack of a better term when we when we think of Terry Bradshaw, we have a vision in our heads of this hyperactive, loud, fun, playful character who comes into your house and asks you about your shingles or who comes into your house and tells you about how you can get a good homeowner's loan or who comes into your house and at that point was selling the MCI 1010-220 cards. Back before people had their own cell phones, used to have calling cards and you would use that first ten ten two twenty in order to get a discounted rate for your long distance phone call. And he was selling those along with Doug Flutie and Mike Piazza. I mean and they were developing this persona and there's this scene, I never forget this one scene where he's in the back of a truck. With a lamb holding on to the, holding on to the lamb being like a southern, southern farm boy. And that was, that was the persona. So the persona leads to the branding. The branding leads to the super celebrity. And that was the character that he had. What he regrets is that that persona is how you become known. And that's all that people know you for. So they assume that you are the persona. That you're not separate from that that there is no other terry bradshaw besides the terry bradshaw that you're playing as this persona and he bemoans this fact to howie long and to uh to jimmy johnson in a wonderful youtube uh, wonderful moment that's available on youtube where you could see them saying i he said he had no choice he was stuck with this role And so he was going to make the best of it. And so he made the best of it by marketing himself as this dumb, good old boy. And then he bemoans the fact that people think he's a dumb, good old boy.
0: (laughs) I remember uh, it might've been back in the late seventies. He did commercials for like steel belted tires, you know, like, uh, and he had four Steelers around. He says, well, if I don't have my offensive line, I have these four Steelers, you know, just playing at the Southern (laughs) angle of it. Right. Um, Let's talk about, Bradshaw going into making records. I mean, some athletes, like you say, put out, you know, try to do records or some would put out novelty records, but I mean, he seemed honestly to approach it very, very seriously.
1: Right. Bob Griffin, who is a sportscaster in uh, Shreveport, Louisiana, said that one day he walked into a, an environment and there was Terry Bradshaw sitting outside the bar in the hotel lounge, strumming, A uh, acoustic guitar, and he told them that he was going to be a musician. And this was in 1974. So Griffith laughed, assuming that this was not going to happen. Tillman Franks, who was a well-known record producer in the country music industry, sees Bradshaw, and Bradshaw tells the great story that he bet him a 100 bucks that he would not be able to turn him into a, a... country western star Tillman took the offer and then proceeded to get him a Mercury Records Mercury Records contract so Bradshaw released and there's a great story from uh, Jerry uh, Jerry Mullins about how this happened but according they went into the recording studio and Bradshaw had no idea what he was going to sing so he was given a massive song book and they're looking at this saying what am I going to choose and Jerry Mullins, who's not a country Western fan, said, well, my parents listens to country Western music and they liked, I'm so lonesome, I could cry. Why don't you sing that? So Bradshaw does. And it goes to a top 10 in 1976. And Bradshaw is actually country artist for the year for the first, first week in March of 1976. And then he goes on tour. And there's funny stories about that. Well, too. like the
0: time he was in Dallas and he was singing and they didn't exactly treat him treat him with respect, <laughs> did they?
1: You can't expect fans to appreciate your artistry when you've actually beaten their team.
0: That's, that's very true. <laughs>
1: yeah, that is quite true. That's why they're fanatics. But, I mean, there's a great story. Jerry Mullins said that when they went on tour, Bradshaw tried, but he didn't understand. He didn't have a he didn't have a professional professionally trained singing voice. So he wore his voice out by touring for several months. And when he got it back, they would go to these clubs, and then the people afterwards would say, Come to the back room and hang out with us and do drinks and talk. And so Bradshaw would end up Bradshaw and Mullins ended up going to bed at four o'clock in the morning, night after night, and then they'd get up the next day and go fly or take a bus to the next place where they were performing and go through the same routine again. Mullen said he lost 25 pounds and that's no good for an offensive lineman. So he quit. (laughs) He left Bradshaw alone and went back to, to eating and preparing for the, for the next season.
0: And it sounds like more work than it was probably worth.
1: Especially when you're not getting paid. True.
0: True. I think Bradshaw even said something. I think you might have quoted him as saying, gosh, this is more work than football or or something along those lines.
1: Much harder, much harder than than he found football. But it's interesting because these uh, he tried to tour the next year, too, and quickly realized that he wasn't able to fulfill his contract. It's very hard to to do something halftime, like playing football halftime and being an actor or being a singer half your time. It's just not commonly done as we know. And he was trying to do this. I think the classic example is after Cannonball Run, him and Mel were seen as, uh, successful in the movie. They had a chemistry. So Johnny Carson Productions was behind the, the movie and, uh, Hal Leader, who was the, uh, the director said, we've got to, we've got to make a pilot of these two, and we'll call them stock car racers, we'll call them the stockers. And so this was at the point when uh, the Dukes of Hazards was at its height in, the, in the 1981, and so they taped Bradshaw and Mel Tillis in a television series, which was a pilot that they were giving to a- NBC. Bradshaw took an incredible amount of guff from Pittsburgh Steelers fans and football fans in general, for being perceived as possibly leaving. He would leave the football industry if he was successful with this pilot. And that did not go over very well. As you can imagine, the team fans were extremely upset. And, you know, football fans in general couldn't imagine somebody walking away in the prime of their career.
0: Yeah, I could see that. The fans are very interested in, in what they're doing on the field, not necessarily what they're doing off of it. Um and, and of course Bradshaw also did gospel music as well. Um was he um which did he do you think he preferred?
1: Eventually his love of gospel continued. And in fact he did it some he did he got a Dove nomination for album of the year in nineteen eighty two. Uh, one of his songs has been taken by a couple of different gospel groups and and played in the, the late 80s. And then, of course, in the 1990s, he joined with a bunch of people doing old-timey gospel uh, from the 1950s and 60s. So he continues to sing with churches, too, on a regular basis. So I think it's clear that his greatest passion is gospel music. And then he goes into
0: film. Now, when he, one of my favorite, uh, scenes of Bradshaw is in Cannonball Run, where he's, he's driving the car and they make a left here, make a right there, and they go flying <laughs> into the pool. <laughs> and he goes, uh, well, right. uh, let's go get a beer. Right. <laughs> Which again plays to that Southern good old boy image. And, um, he was, right. uh, and I, I'm sure he approached it just as, as fervently as he did country music and football. I mean, he, seem to have a natural talent to just, you know, be himself.
1: Correct. Kathy Bates makes this comment, which basically says personality sells. There's an Oscar winning actress who's getting in failure to launch, which was 2004, Matthew McConaughey, Kathy Bates, played his wife, Terry Bradshaw's wife in that movie. She basically says, Hey, he's a great guy, but, he gets a lot of the attention and he's just a natural because he's able to present his personality in such an engaging way. And there's the Oscar winning actress being overshadowed by the former professional football player.
0: And I think she said it made, it made he made her feel very comfortable as, as an actress playing
1: off of him that way. She did say that, exactly. Although I'm not sure that she was actually experiencing his naked butt during <laughs> the, uh, the scenes. The, yeah, he, uh he had a little bit of guff over that, too. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. The critics, especially the sports writers, could not. It was a field day for them. Uh, I, I think their horror was real, though.
0: Mm-hmm. Could you imagine if Twitter or Facebook was, uh, was in this full swing back then?
1: Yes, but maybe in his new movie, which is coming out, called you know future. What is it called? Future Farmer, Future Fathers, or uh, I can't remember what it's called right now. It's escaping me. He oh. may do it again. Well, he's going to reprise <laughs> yeah. his oh, father. Father figures. That's what it's called. Okay. Him, Ben Rhymes, and uh, J.K. Simmons are all potential fathers for two ni- two guys in their forties and that's the that's the plot of the movie,
0: you know it' be interesting.
1: Uh, it could be frightening yes <laughs> <laughs> let's let's uh
0: let's move on to Bradshaw's career as a broadcaster. He started off as a sure. color analyst and was the, down at the bottom of the chain and then he worked himself up. Uh, what did you mm-hmm. see as his strengths and weaknesses, and then you know what made him so appealing to the public when he finally got to the to the main desk there
1: okay, so what's fascinating about his color commentating career is that he really was a better studio analyst. I think Vern Lundquist, who was his partner for most of the years, the five or so years that they were, that he was in the broadcast booth for CBS, saw him as hyper animated, always moving his limbs around, being very, being very uh, energetic. And that's not what a color commentator is best for. I mean, yes, John Madden did that to some degree, but Madden confined his comments and his moves to a certain space. Bradshaw was a little bit more energetic than that. But eventually, uh, Ted Shaker, who was the second producer over at CBS for CBS Sports that Bradshaw had, basically told them, you have to get sharper with your comments. You have to put some of the jokes to the side because people are not necessarily watching football to laugh. The fans are taking football very seriously. And so you you need to be an effective commentator. So he really did get much better at that. And he was pretty incisive. He was not afraid to say what he thought. And in fact, that helped him, in his mind, get the job at CBS on the anchor desk when they fired Brett Musburger in 1990 and then hired Greg Greg Gumbel and Terry Bradshaw to be at the NFL NFL Today on CBS Bradshaw was pressing it And basically called The San Francisco 49ers Romp over the Denver Broncos And he almost got the score Exactly right
0: Yeah I think said 55 he said 55-3 to three or something And it was 55-10 right.
1: right and he was harsh on John Elway too Which then again showed that He if you weren't up to What he considered to be Uh a certain standard he would say so even if everybody else did not necessarily believe that and so that kind of calling it like it is which ironically you mentioned howard cosell earlier howard cosell was certainly seen as that type of person too bradshaw did it in a more homey different way but he certainly said what he thought and it was usually insightful and that helped them conceive of him as the potential uh, commentator, studio analyst in that day for the CBS pregame show. And I talk a lot about that. I mean, I talk about the the reactions that they had to the Zeke Moa situation where the sexual harassment of Lisa Olson from the Boston Herald and how both adroitly Greg Gumbel and Bradshaw commented, but they really let the person, Leslie Visser, who was the, the female in the group at that point, run the conversation. They were smart to take yeah. a secondary position. Definitely. Definitely. In that situation. While while
0: you were doing your research in this book, uh, was there anything that really surprised you or that you learned that you didn't know about Bradshaw or the football business? Or any of the other businesses, to be honest.
1: Yeah, exactly. I I did not know that much about the stalkers, and I had, and my perception is, had the stalkers came out in April of 1981, the movie Cannonball Run, the first one came out in June of 1981. It had the pilot been waited? Had they waited to show the pilot after the movie, given the movie's success? it quite likely might've gotten picked up and become a show. In which case, Terry Bradshaw might've left the football industry before the fall of 1981. You know, usually you proceed, you you don't really break something out until the, the parent of that, which would be the movie, comes out first. And it would have generated interest in their characters, would have introduced people to who they were, and then the pilot gets on, and the pilot would have drawn higher ratings, and then therefore probably would have been successful. I think that was my biggest surprise definitely um
0: gosh, let's see here's here's the part of the interview where i you get to add anything I might have forgotten or that might you might have forgotten. Is there anything that I've missed or okay. that you've missed that you want to add
1: i think there's I think the most important part of his building his brand really is the commercials. I mean, yes, it helps. What you need to do is you need to last more than one or two generations. What you talked about, considering who's the top quarterback of all time, and obviously people of the 70s might say, you know, Roger Staubach or Terry Bradshaw. People of the 80s might point to Joe Montana or Dan Marino as sometimes brought up in those conversations. People of this generation It's Tom Brady, who's the GOAT. Um, What that tells me more than anything else is that we're kind of prisoners to our own generation. That not only do fans tend to lionize the generation of people that they saw playing maybe their first, the first generation that they saw or the first generation that they saw as, you know, when they were professionals in covering sports, they tend to emphasize that group of people. So therefore, a, a professional athlete really has a, a generation of of fans, and then the getting fans outside of that generation, you have to do something else. And so, what he did, among the, among the things that he did, was to become an effective color commentator, which a couple others have done. Merlin Olson is a perfect example of that, and then he became a studio analyst. And so, people know you. They know Terry Bradshaw, not necessarily as a quarterback, but they know him now as a studio analyst. And in the pop culture realm, what kept him going was all the commercials. You talked about all the local commercials that he did and the smaller commercials that he did in the, in the seventies and eighties. In the nineties, he was doing the Visa commercial and there's the funny Visa commercial with Dick Buckus. And, that, and then after that, he was doing the, the home, home loans. And then he was doing the the ten ten two twenty cards, and now he's doing all the medicine. So it's interesting that he's following, in some respects, you could argue that he's following the aging of his of his fan base. In some respects, if you think about that, especially now with selling medicine to people who are in their sixties and seventies, but he's also keeping himself seen and visible, and that makes him knowable to younger people so they may not know him as a football player but they know him as a silly man who's selling shingles uh anti-shingles viral medicines
0: tell the story if you will about uh, when Bradshaw and Dick Butkus made their commercial together
1: oh yes right Dick Butkus and Bradshaw Dick Butkus says I you know I, I I'm sorry Bob I can't really recall it right now I'm I'm I've forgotten that. Oh, okay. Basically, uh, unfortunately, that's okay. Basically, Butkus was angry that
0: um, Bradshaw kept messing up.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And knowing, knowing the character that I see as Terry Bradshaw, I'm not saying I know Terry Bradshaw, but I know the character of Terry Bradshaw. I can almost imagine him doing it on purpose.
0: (laughs) And until, uh, until Butkus bared his teeth.
1: Right, exactly. Well, and that's part of the Dick Buckus persona, right? Right, right. You know, bare your teeth. I mean, there's another character. I mean, it's interesting how we think about people, and I'm watching Tony Romo now, and I'm watching Tony Romo as an incredibly competent analyst, and he's very good at what he's doing, but I'm not sure that he's selling me a great personality. I This is no offense to Tony Romo, It's just uh, uh, an observation in year one.
0: Do you think maybe uh, as he goes on and gets more experience, he might be able to develop a personality?
1: We're not sure if he wants to become a larger than life figure. I mean, that's basically what we're talking about. Becoming almost a caricature of yourself. And that's what you're marketing. Taking one aspect of your person and blowing it up to almost cartoonish, into a cartoonish realm in order to be quickly perceived by people Mm -hmm. and therefore branded.
0: Well, I tell you, it's been, I could talk with you all night, but unfortunately I can't do that. Um, We know your time is valuable as well. Um, Do you have another project in the, in the works?
1: I'm debating a couple of different projects. It depends on uh, there's one way, which would be about the the Washington capitals history, which I think is a, as a, a sad history, but a fascinating history of a team that, for some unknown reason, has had an incredible uh, snake bite when it comes to the playoffs. Despite their winning president's trophies and all kinds of other fascinating success during the year, every time they go into the playoffs and they lose, often heartbreaking in incredibly heartbreaking ways. So, that's one. And I'm just not sure what the market is for that.
0: How many uh, How many years have you been in Washington?
1: I have been in Washington since 1993, and I absolutely love it. We are We are a vibrant place, and as many of you probably know from touring, we have an incredible amount of of free or inexpensive places to go, sponsored by fortunately sponsored by the taxpayers such as the national gallery or all the Smithsonian yes. museums, you could spend, you could spend four days just doing that, but we're, we're growing, we're vibrant. And I just, I love being here.
0: And you're an archivist of electronic records. What exactly is that the national archives or somewhere else? Or
1: It is at the, it is at the national archives. And what I do is I, uh, historic records are deemed to be historically valuable for legal or for demonstrations of uh, actions of federal uh, officials and evidence of actions of federal officials. So our job is to then take those records, make sure that they're in a format that is quote unquote open or neutral, meaning can be used by any variety of type of operating system. Mm. And maintain those for the life of the republic plus one day. That's our joke. <laughs> so we actually do, and it's so. There's maps that show you where what the boundaries of national parks are. There are my favorite. One of my favorites is a database that tells you where all the sunken ships with all the great treasures are through history. All, it's National Oceanographic uh, and Atmospheric Agency. So it's NOAA. So therefore, it's sunken anywhere. <laughs> and what we do is we restrict the knowledge of the coordinates of where the ship where the ship actually lays and the content that the ship was carrying, the cargo. So you can't know that, and we don't let anybody know that because otherwise there'd be all these launching parties going <laughs> Not out. Very true. <laughs> to go to these sites to go see the Spanish the Spanish bullion or good with the Spanish gold that's sitting in some sunken, sunken ship from the 1600s. that some pirate from Britain sank. It's Mel Fisher, Mel that's, Fisher all over again. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's a lot of fun. I mean, I really enjoy doing what I do. So it's a pleasure. Definitely.
0: Um, and you graduated uh, with, you, I mean, you got your um, doctorate at American university. Is that right?
1: I did. Yes, indeed. And I'm curious, what was the subject of your dissertation? The subject of my dissertation was called Hooray for Hollywood. And it was an investigation into the publicity of uh, stars and other figures from the 19th, between World War One and World War Two. Basically, it argues that Hollywood was trying to make itself as a unique place while it was building itself as the head of the film world uh, because there was... Film, filming in New York. There was filming in Jacksonville, Florida. There were all kinds of companies located all over the place. But some companies like the Inns Company moved to Hollywood in the teens. And after that, basically to solidify itself as the film capital, Hollywood promoted the weirdness of itself. So people, men that dress like women, women that dress like men, Men that have same sex interest, women that have same sex interest, and they would show Hollywood stars going to these clubs and seeing these drag queens or other uh, or women that cross dress and enjoying themselves. There was also my favorite example. Uh, this actually affected the mainstream of uh, public publicity in that era too. Clark Gable was married to a woman by the name of Rita Gable in 1936 37 she was an older woman he had married older women but she was uh, a steady figure in his life he fell in love with Carol Lombard the actress and they couldn't marry because she would not Mrs Mrs Gable would not get Grant Clark a divorce so they went to a they went to a 1938 opening of Marie Antoinette and they're shown in Life magazine at a table and it says Mr. Gable and Mrs. Lombard are at a table as a couple. Poor Clark can't can't marry her because he has a wife who won't give him a divorce. In other words, they're promoting adultery in the film industry. And since you like Clark Gable and you love Carol Lombard, you're supposed to feel sorry for (laughs) them. And who likes Mrs. Gable? We don't know Mrs. Gable. Get rid of her. She should divorce him. And that is that is Hollywood publicity in that era. So it's a book called Hollywood Bohemians. And it was a lot of fun writing that. It's incredible, again, like this book on Bradshaw also shows. The resources that are available in magazines and newspapers uh, across the nation. And now they have collection sites where you can go to get all the community newspapers And all you do is you put in a search term and it's going to look across a thousand or 10,000 newspapers that are across the country that have existed since, you know, the middle of the 1800s on. They've all been digitized and it will tell you how many of that word shows up and where it shows up. And so I was able to do quick research on Terry Bradshaw by finding out, you know, a, a small New England newspaper or a small New York state newspaper had this comment on Terry Bradshaw as a singer or in this this is a West Virginia newspaper talking about his appearance at the Country Jam race.
0: yeah like newspapers.com is i find is a very very great source to, to look things up
1: yeah it's incredible it really is so journalists are the first historians is the way I look at it they have the first crack at writing the events and covering the events of what's going on. And then those of us who write different kinds of histories come along and use this stuff as primary material.
0: That's very true. And as a journalist, I can appreciate that.
1: Yes, indeed, it's quite true.
0: Yeah, we've been talking with uh, Brett L. Abrams, the author of Terry Bradshaw from Super Bowl Champion, to television personality. And Brett, we really appreciate you being on the show today. It was a very interesting show.
1: I appreciate it, Bob. It was really fun being here.
0: You've been listening to the New Books and Sports podcast. I'm Bob D'Angelo, and thank you for joining us. Until next time, remember that the game is what matters. We'll talk to you next time.